This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to John Atman, editor-in-chief from TechNote and host of China Tech Talk podcast, where we discuss the myth-busting on China from government, media censorship, innovation, execution, and education system. Hi, John. Hey, Bernard. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit hot here in Beijing, but the summer is almost over. Probably is a pretty interesting summer in Beijing because there's so many things have been happening because of the recent VPN issue, right? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on in the news, in particular, that's been getting a lot of international play, in particular, virtual private network technology, but then also, you know, Tencent with Honor of Kings and, you know, all a, a whole bunch of other topics. And I'm talking to John Atman, editor-in-chief from TechNote and also host of the new podcast, China Tech Talk, which I've recently guest starred in. Of course, thank you for inviting me. And during that conversation, I have already said that I'm going to invite you back to the show. <laughs> you did. You did. No, and that was it, it was it was really great to have you on because I think that, you know, for for us at Technode we cover mostly, you know, technology in China, but then, you know, one of the big stories, one of the big trends right now is as a lot of these these companies are moving to Southeast Asia. And so I think you were able to give us a really really good kind of broad overview of of what's what's happening in in, in Southeast Asia, uh, in particular with with Alibaba. And so it'll be great to have you on again where we can dive a little bit deeper into some of the some of the things that we touched upon. And I'm pretty sure I will be there at your request. So, but before that, it will also be good for me to get to know you better. How do you start your career and subsequently, how do you end up becoming the editor-in-chief from Techno then? To be honest, it's a bit of a long story, so I'll, I'll keep it short. A lot of it is a lot of it is coincidence and serendipity. When I was in university, I studied Chinese for three years. It was uh, it was my my minor. My major was psychology and philosophy, and so in in my course of study, I, I visited China a few times. And then when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It's kind of out the gate. It's hard to find you know a job with psychology and philosophy that isn't you know continuing inside of academia. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And and yeah, and so I graduated. I found this random job at a mental health facility for for children that was in the area. I quit that job. It was very, very stressful. And I didn't get very much support from my manager. So I quit that about a little bit less than a year into it. Didn't know what I was going to do. So a bunch of my friends, they were moving to Nashville, Tennessee. You know, they were musicians and artists. And I said, you know what, I, I'm just going to go and go there and kind of figure it out. But before I moved, I was having Christmas with my father's side of the family. And my uncle, at the time, he was actually living here in Beijing. And so I was telling him my plans, you know, I was, you know, I just quit. I was going to move to Nashville. I was like, John, look, you know, you can go and hang out with your friends whenever you want, or you can go to China right now and ride the wave. You know, I just kind of thought about it for a second. I was like, you know what? You're right. That's exactly, that's that's actually a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? And so I came here, I, I taught English as most young expats do. I did that for about a year and a half. Around that time, I, w- I also was able to find a part-time job working for China National Radio, doing a daily 30-minute business 
English show. And so that's kind of cool because we talked, we, you know, we, we taught our, our audience, you know, business vocabulary, but then we also discussed kind of interesting pieces of news. And so that really kind of stoked my interest in, in media in general, but uh, in radio in, in, in particular. And so I was able to, to leverage that into a position at China Radio International. And so I was there for about five and a half years. And so China Radio International is a, is a state-run media organization. It's the same as like Xinhua or China Daily or the People's Daily. And so it's it's still, you know, part of the part of the propaganda apparatus, if you will, almost like the VOA of uh, of China. So I was there for about about five and a half years. I started off doing doing reporting and like putting packages together. Uh, towards the end, I actually hosted two different radio shows, two different live radio shows, one hour each, one in the morning, which was kind of like global headline news and, and discussion. And then one in the afternoon, which was discussion of like social issues, economic policy, you know, what people were complaining about on Chinese social media and, and things like that. And that was that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about China. And it was really kind of interesting because most of my colleagues were, were Chinese. And so whereas back then my Chinese reading wasn't so good, they were able to do a lot of research. And I was able to use that research on the show. And of course, in the process learning, I think, about China, what I probably would not have learned otherwise. But then, so after that, so I was there for five and a half years. I got kind of fed up doing radio, working for China Radio International. I mean, it's not really a place where foreigners are going to, you know, you know, really cultivate their career. It's what I call the bamboo ceiling. I mean, you're, you know, I was there, I was fairly well respected, but at the same time, you know, there was, there was no room for upward movement. And so I started looking around, found a job working for a, a localization company here, here in Beijing called, uh, called Seasoft. Very interesting company, but I was there for about a year and a half. And in that time, I uh, helped them to build a completely new business unit to service uh, Chinese, Chinese clients, basically helping Chinese clients improve their English language community. So yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. And then I saw that Technode was looking for a managing editor. And, I, you know, I was kind of feeling a bit bored. You know, the media, the great thing about working in the media is that it's there's always something new. There's always something exciting. And you're always learning a lot. I and mean, that's one of the things I, I really love about it. And so I, I saw that the Technode was was looking for for a managing editor. And, you know, technology obviously is, is a very exciting field these days. And so I applied for it. Uh, and to be honest, at the time, I, I wasn't quite expecting to be considered because, you know, I didn't really have much experience you know, working in written content. And at the time I wasn't, it was more on a lark, you know, just kind of see, see what, see what might happen. Once we started, once I started talking with Gang Lu, our, our CEO and founder, you know, I think that our interests really, really aligned. You know, I was looking for, for somewhere where I could, you know, build something and also work for an organization that was uh, growth oriented. And that's definitely what, what TechNote is. And so I, I've been here since uh, November November of 2016, and we it's just been it's just been up and to the right since then. So that's it's it's been really nice. And it's a pleasure working with you because I syndicate a podcast on TechNode as well. So one interesting thing I probably wanted to ask you: uh, which period were you in China, and also when did you actually move from the U.S. to China? So actually, I moved to China in March of 2008. It was fortuitously right before the Olympics. Obviously, you know, not because of the Olympics. I've been in Beijing actually since 2008. I met my wife around that time, actually. So I met her about six months into, into actually living here. And uh, we started dating and got married back in uh, 2011. And uh, now we, we have two kids. So in your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? It's a very interesting question. I would say... Working with Chinese people can be difficult is probably one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. It's not like one of those, I'm not being one of those expats who who are, you know, 
just complaining about the indigenous people or, or something like that. It's not it's not like a colonial kind of perspective. It's it's more that with the best intentions on both sides, working across cultures is very, very difficult sometimes because both of you might be speaking the same language. You know, maybe you're speaking Chinese and they're speaking Chinese or, or you're both speaking English. And maybe the linguistics are all there. You understand every single word that they're saying. They understand every single word that you're saying. But if you're not careful and if you don't understand the cues, then it's actually very easy to miscommunicate. And as that miscommunication goes on, you know, expectations become very, very different. As that gap in expectations get wider, then the working relationship is going to be, be very, very strained. And that's what probably, I'm not sure if that's quite a lesson, but that's the thing that I think that has really characterized my career here in China is just learning how to work with Chinese people is very difficult, can, can be difficult, but it, you know, it takes, takes a very open mind and, and a willingness to, to listen and to, and to learn how to, how to uh, communicate with them. And again, I mean, it's not, not to say that it's not, that it's impossible. Obviously it's not, but it can be very difficult if you're not coming at it from, from the right perspective. So we were talking about a major topic that we, you and I want to discuss, and we came up with this one called myth busting on China. So <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be an interesting topic to think about because I think a lot of us who's living outside of China, we have a certain way of looking into China, even for myself, given my forefathers all came from China. So I, I, I guess the way to start off is we, both of us, uh, before this, this conversation has actually pre-written five myths and we're going to talk about mm. each one as a whole. So th I know that the first one you wrote down is China is a communist country and only cares about itself. What is the myth that you want to bust here? So I first came to China back in 2004 as part of my, my course of study. I had been studying for a year. Uh, as part of my university, we spent uh, one month in Suzhou and then another month traveling around uh, China uh, during, during the summer of 2004. And when I came back, like the first thing that people asked me was, so so what's it like? Is it really, you know, what's it like going to a communist country? And, you know, some people even asked me when I came back if I had, you know, come back as like a Maoist or something like that. And to be honest, I had no idea what Maoism was. I was just fascinated by the language and the culture, didn't know much about the history at the time. But that's the thing. I mean, I think that that, that China, China, you know, obviously the ruling party is the Communist Party of China. You know, the, Xi Jinping is the, the chairman and the president of of the country but in in a sense you know it's not it's not really communist anymore you know if you if you it's very similar to what you know if you know anything about the the transition that cuba is going through right now they're actually modeling a lot of their transition to you know centralized control economy to a more market economy based on some of the things that they've learned from china whereas in china i mean yeah ostensibly you know they do follow communist values in terms of you know the masses and and the people there is this paternalistic sense that you get from the government where there is this sense that the government needs to take care of the people. But if you look at social mechanisms, if you look at social policies, in some ways, China China is much more similar to the United States. I mean, you look at the medical care system and the medical care system, they, they call it social security. And so that covers uh, a wide range of, of different types of insurances. But social security, medical, when it comes to medical care, only covers a very small part of actual medicine, of actual any, like if you want to go to the doctor, you're still going to have to pay, number one, mostly out of pocket. And then you have to go back and actually get get apply for reimbursement. And then, depending on what types of treatment you get or what types of uh, medicine you receive, you only go you might only get you know 
uh, 50 to 80 percent of the actual reimbursement of that cost to you. And so, you know, there there are some parts of the social policy that echo its communist past, but it's definitely, I mean, in practice, China is not a communist country. So it's closer to, you know, as they call it, uh, socialism with with Chinese characteristics. And even then, you know, in, in some ways, the, the, the market mechanisms are given much more free play than you see in a lot of Western countries that that call themselves capitalists. Any, any sign of features that you've seen that actually is a more market-driven economy as compared to a centralized economy? I mean, when I visited China, I think around 2003, 2004 period, it was actually a game changer. I'm seeing so much of development that happened and within a span of decades, is now actually, they have cities like Shanghai and Beijing, the first tier cities, and of course, the new cities that are actually arising up. There's a lot of focus on eco- economic development. But the, the Chinese government also actually helped its own citizens, for example. It actually gives a lot of input into internet companies, like the conversation I think you and Matthew had recently on the esports and particularly how they try to use the people daily actually, you know, making the comment that Tencent, you know, has to limit young kids to play Honor of Kings. Is there something that is actually what you mean by caring more about the people from a Chinese perspective? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean. And, you know, the People's Daily, they, they do things like this all the time. And, and Chinese media does, does things like that all the time. You don't really hear that many statements from, you know, government officials like that. They usually rely on media outlets to, to make these types of statements. But if media outlets are saying this, then it does reflect to a certain degree that people inside inside the government are probably thinking about this or, or discussing this in, in a certain way. And the thing is, that's not really communist. I mean, maybe the propaganda mechanism is a bit, you know, similar to to what communist regimes in the past have used, and the fact that everything is state is state controlled. But that's that's not necessarily communist. And I think that this paternalism that we see from from the Chinese government, uh, and then also, you know, expectations from the people. You know, the people. A lot of Chinese citizens expect that the government is going to, you know, treat them like like its children. It is there to take care of them. It is there to have their best interests in in heart, much like a father does to his children. So I think that that has more to do with Chinese culture than it does to do with than with communism. I mean, you know, you look back at Chinese culture. You know, the emperor historically was believed to be, you know, at the center of the universe, and they were responsible for maintaining the balance of the entire universe. And so, so that's why they had all these rituals and different festivals and things like that. You know, like the emperor, he had to go to, you know, the sun temple for, at a certain time. He had to go to the earth temple at a certain time and so on and so on in order to make sure that balance and order was maintained in the universe. This idea that the Chinese state is paternalistic, again, it's less communist and, and just more harking back to Chinese traditional culture, I think. I thought it was interesting that in this myth, you talk about Chinese as a communist country and only cares about itself. It's beginning to stretch itself further out of China, as in recently with the One Belt, One Road initiative, which basically some in the West call the China New Silk Road Dreams. Can you talk a little bit about the One Belt, One Road initiative and actually what, what does that really signal the shift in where China is going? It's going to be more a global type of superpower where it's beginning to be more opening its doors out into the world? Yeah, I don't think it's opening its doors. Compared to like Japan and, and South Korea, I think culturally China is more open. You know, they're much more, the, the people that I've met and the people that I know in general are much more open to talking with foreigners. They're much more open to learning from Western traditions and, and kind of Western ways of doing things. That doesn't mean that 
that they're giving up their 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 innate Chineseness, if you will. In fact, some of the most educated in Western quote unquote ways are are still very very nationalist. I don't think that in the sense that they're that the China is opening up to the rest of the world in the sense that they're going to welcome in more of the West. In fact, there's this there's this ongoing debate for for years about Western influence in China. And a lot of what some of some recent statements in the last couple of years from government officials, including Xi Jinping, suggest that the government is actually trying to lessen the impact of other countries culturally and economically on China, inside China. So I think that the One Belt, One Road is just, uh, it's it's a very pragmatic strategy where they're saying, you know, in order to continue to have influence, in order to expand influence, and also to make sure that they have access to the, to the resources and the trade routes, this is one of the, one of the initiatives that they need to do, which is to help other developing countries improve in, in general mostly their their infrastructure so railroads energy telecommunication and and things like that and it's it's actually kind of funny because this is one of the strategies that the United States used back in the the you know the 60s 70s 80s 90s maybe even even to today to to a certain degree of you know talking to developing countries and saying hey you know what we can help you build your roads we can help build build your your electricity systems in exchange for you know, certain concessions or in exchange for making sure that you only use, you know, U.S. construction companies or U.S. Uh, energy companies or something like that. And so the One Belt, One Road, I think, is 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 almost a mirror image of that U.S. state of that U.S. strategy. But whereas the U.S. strategy was much more was much more subtle, you know, you going through uh, private organizations, going through uh, the World Bank and the IMF, the, the OBOR, or One Belt, One Road, as it's referred to sometimes, is a bit more overt. It's a bit more like this is very, very obviously sponsored by by the Chinese state. And so I think at the end of the day, it's just it's just pragmatic in order to make sure that that China has the access that it needs to continue growing and, and to, to make sure that it's get, it gets the resources and access to trade that it's going to need this that they've decided to, to to build this, and they're doing and they're doing it in an area that I think they they've shown quite a bit of uh, expertise in, which is which is building infrastructure. I mean, you know, one of the greatest success stories in China is just you know the, their ability to to build railways, to build roads, to build sewer systems, and all of these things very very basic to a growing country. I'll come to the myth too. Then censorship is everywhere, and the Chinese government controls everything. Tell me, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that it gets this is something that I, I mean, I just want to say that, yes, it's real. Censorship is real. The government does try to be very involved in, in people's life. I would say it's much more involved in people's life than than it was than, than the U.S. government is back in the States. Um, that being said, I think that this issue gets overblown way too often. So I and, and I think that you we also have to be be a little bit careful here as well because you know what what do we mean by censorship? Censorship could be the government steps in and says, you know, you can't talk about this, which they do. They do that to to media outlets and they do that to you know internet companies and and things like that. They 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 definitely do that. But you look at, you know, US media, I would say mainstream media and they do almost the same thing but voluntarily. There are certain things that they just will not talk about. And so is that censorship as well? I mean, the government's not telling them not to talk about things, but they choose not to anyway. So I think that we have to be very, very careful when we're talking about censorship because it cuts it cuts both ways. It's not just China that implements these types of policies. So so yeah, I mean like censorship is a big is still is is definitely an issue. But you but you see like in in China, I mean, you know, on a daily basis people are in some ways more able to do what they want than in the States. I mean like 
in China, China, the way that I think about it, China is the land of a thousand regulations. But the thing is, these thousand regu- out of these thousand regulations, probably like one percent actually gets enforced on a regular basis. Uh, what happens most of the time is that these one percent get enforced on a regular basis, and then. Uh, you know, before an important event. So for example, the national holiday, which is coming up in October, as well as the the 19th uh, party Congress, which is probably happening in October or November, this large crackdowns happen before there's a lot of DVD stores. And so, and, and so before these big events, these big important events, you know, police or other enforcement agencies would go in and shut these places down. And then, you know, after the big event was over, then they just opened back up. And so I think that's something to keep in mind that, that yes, in, in some ways the government is stricter, that in some ways there's a regulation for, for anything that you could, pro- you could almost possibly think of in China. That doesn't mean it always gets enforced. That doesn't mean that the government is always involved in everyone's life and, and telling them what to do. So recently, the Chinese government has pressurized Apple to cave in on the VPN apps in the Chinese iTunes app store. So are they increasing their footprint in terms of trying to allow people from dialing out of China to seek information? I mean, actually, this actually cuts both ways too, right? It also gives strategic tax to the actual Chinese companies who's competing globally by not allowing them to access that information is also just as bad to their own economic status as compared if they had had that information. So where do you see the VPN thing goes from here then? Well, I mean, the, so with the VPNs, all they're saying with the VPNs is that individuals, so individuals cannot use unlicensed, unregistered virtual private network technology. Whereas state-run telecommunications firms, they provide virtual VPN technology to businesses, and that's just you know you can you can pay for it as as a service. So they're not they're not cracking down a hundred percent. All they're saying is that they don't want individuals to be using that. There's a few different things going on. Number one, I think a few years ago, part of the reasoning was to give Chinese technology companies, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, Weibo, things like that, a bit more space to play. And so not not having to worry about competing with Facebook, competing with Twitter or YouTube or, or, or things like that. So I think that that definitely was part of uh, part of their reasoning. I don't think they're not so concerned about people accessing information. They're more concerned about certain elements communicating and them not having control of the information itself. I think that over the last two or three decades, the Chinese government, the, the education system has done a great job educating the, the country's children to believe certain things about China, to believe certain things about the country and, and its leaders, to the extent that even if people were exposed to certain types of information, they may not believe it, they may not agree with it, or they might find reasons to, to, to invalidate it. And so I think that in a certain sense, you know, the the Great Firewall isn't so necessary for that. I think it's more it's more about you know you look at the uh, the partial block of WhatsApp. Why would they block WhatsApp? Well, the biggest reason is because people use that to communicate, and so they don't want a communication tool that is not somehow under their control. Uh, you think about WeChat, for example. All the WeChat servers are based here in China. You know, every single major Chinese company, technology or no has someone a representative of the communist party you know at at their their upper in their upper management and so you know you look at wechat and it, obviously it's not government controlled but at any given point you know the chinese government could conceivably say hey look you need to block this you need to block that you know you you got to make sure people aren't talking about this or even you know monitor communications on on wechat as well so that's definitely a big a big big issue for anyone thinking about doing business here anyone thinking about thinking about living here i mean like wechat is not a secure 
messaging environment. I'll, I'll put it that way. And I guess they also have no sense of humor because they also bend beneath the pool now, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta be careful. Don't, don't, don't poke fun of uh, of the leaders. They don't, they don't like that at all. I want to get into myth three, which I thought is the most interesting one. There is no innovation, and you and I, for sure, we know that this is not true. Every time anyone tells me that you know Singapore, Hong Kong being fintech hubs, I'm like, you know, I was trying to tell them, you know, nothing what you're talking about. Just go to China, <laughs> just walk into Guangzhou, turn on your Alipay app, and I'm sure you can walk out without spending a single RMB. So, tell me exactly how to bust this myth. Well, that's that's the thing. This myth really got going back in the early 2000s when China was was becoming more more and more of an influence on, on the world stage, and it was also you know becoming more notorious as a um, as an exporter of of low quality goods. And so I think a lot of that a lot of it came from that, where where you know a lot of foreign observers they they're looking at what is coming out of China and they say oh okay it's just it's it's components for phones it's you know toys being sold you know by Mattel and things like that and so so to a certain degree obviously that's not chinese innovation at all but if you come here and if you live here you can see that there's a lot of innovation going on but at the time it, back then at least it was mostly for the domestic market i mean like there are things here in china you know go go down to shenzhen go to huatiangbei and there are things that you can buy here that you're not going to find anywhere else. And that, you know, the, maybe if you go onto, you know, Alibaba's there, they have a market designed for for people outside of China. You can buy that stuff there, but, you know, you're not really going to find it anywhere else. And so I think that there's been a long tradition of, you know, these these brandless companies, these these manufacturers building up, just making stuff that is actually very, very useful for, for Chinese for Chinese people that you're not going to find anywhere else. I mean, a great example is accessories for, for electric bikes. You know, electric bikes are very, very popular here in China. Motor scooters, motorcycles ha- are, are very difficult to drive legally. And so because of that, the market ended up going to, to electric bikes instead. And, you know, go on Taobao you can find the most random, the most random accessories for your electric bike. And all of that is made in China for Chinese people. And to, and to my mind, that that is innovation. But I think that, you know, since since about since since WeChat and Alipay and things like that, obviously, the, the, the game has changed quite a bit where you, what, what we're seeing is it's not it's not necessarily innovation for I mean, it's still innovation for Chinese people, but it's more obvious to to foreign observers, I think. And I think that that's that's one of the things that you kind of have to keep in mind as well. Like you look at Tencent and the success of WeChat, a lot of that is based upon their very, very deep understanding of the Chinese consumer. And so just because they're able to innovate, you know, around that product for the Chinese consumer doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be so good at innovating for for a non-Chinese consumer. But also I think that, you know, we were talking a little bit about regulations and government involvement. I mean, like you look at bike sharing, for example, you look at actually, you know, mobile payments are great, is a great example. So back in 2014, I believe, the, the People's uh, Bank of China, the PBOC, made a statement saying that QR codes are not to be allowed to make payments because they're insecure and and they are there's no guarantee that when you agree to when you scan a QR code and you agree to to make that payment that it is actually going to who they say they are and, and things like that. So that's and that's still a, still an issue. But QR codes have blown up since then. And the PBOC basically said nothing after that. And, and the government was just very, very hands off in many ways, allowing this industry to flourish. Bike sharing is, a, it, well, even before that, ride hailing is another great example. The number of times that the government said that, you know, this aspect or that aspect of ride sharing is illegal. It's you're not allowed to do that. But how often companies would actually do it. 
they would actually, you know, go against the regulation, not necessarily breaking the law, but going against regulations. And and they were able to mature the industry and grow their companies by basically, in some ways, defying the government. Ride hailing is another great example where it wasn't until last week that the government, that the national government actually implemented national regulations for bike sharing. And this is, you know, a year and a half after, you know, OFO really kind of, OFO and Mobike really took off. And so they're, the government in general, as long as it's not too sensitive, the government in general is actually very hands-off uh, with new industries. And so because of that, these industries can can really flourish and and develop. It's only until they're getting a bit more mature that the government steps in and says, oh, okay, okay, this is how it needs to be done. This is how it needs to be done. And by that time, the winners have pretty much already won. But the narrative is also changing in Silicon Valley as well. If you listen to Reid Hoffman's A Masters of Scale podcast, recently he made this comment that China is probably the only other place in the world that can host a Silicon Valley. He was referring to what is happening in Shenzhen and what's happening in Beijing. And then if you were to think about in Recode recently, it used to be, you know, when American companies talk about China, they talk about them as clones. But when you hear Dave Marcus from Facebook, who runs the Messenger app, say, no, you know, we think WeChat is a great messaging app and we are actually learning a lot of what they are doing. And in a Recode conference with Kara Swisher around, they're saying something, right? That narrative, it seems to be shifting as well as it's going as well. A lot of that was, you know, I mean, you, you look at Tencent and, and WeChat as a messaging platform. I mean, a lot of that was, you know, Pony Ma and Alan Zhang saying, hey, look, we need to build a mobile first, a mobile first application. You know, and this was back in 2010 and 2011. This is around the time, like maybe right before I even had my own smartphone you know, they had launched this application. And so I think that's that was the real key for them was they're, they're going to build this mobile first platform, whereas you have Facebook, Twitter and, and Instagram. I mean, a lot of these, well, maybe not, excuse me. So, you know, you, you look at Facebook in particular, I think one of the reasons that they've been caught by surprise, it, you might you might say by by Snap in particular, but then, of course, in terms of product development by WeChat is that they're an older company. They started with when the Internet was all browser based. And in fact, you know, if you if you remember, they were very reluctant to uh, create their own native application for iOS and Android. It was only once, you know, their their HTML5 applications were really bad. They're like, okay, fine, we actually have to invest in this. And so I think that to a certain degree, Facebook is one of those examples of a company that hasn't really taken mobile all that seriously. Whereas WeChat, Alipay is, a, is an interesting example as well, where, you know, Alipay was actually first started on the desktop. It actually, it was a way for people to transact and exchange money uh, through through Taobao and, and through Tmall. Once Alibaba realized that they had to move into mobile, they were just like, you know what, if you want to use the desktop application, we're going to make it really hard. And we're going to give discounts and other incentives for people to use the mobile application. And so now, you know, the the desktop application is more, more for vendors and, and for, for, you know, the back end than it is for even your your small your small your small seller or your regular buyer. And so I think that's the main innovation for for China really has just been the recognizing the the potential of of mobile and really capitalizing on that. I mean, you know, PCs in China were never really a thing. And once mobile came along, it's just up and to the right all the way. I was actually pretty impressed by the fact that there was recently somebody from Beijing brought a phone that looks almost like the iPhone. It turns out it's actually a Oppo Vivo phone. And yeah. of course, not, not <laughs> yeah. to withstand a lot of people don't know that there's a blockchain project in China called Quantum or QT, yeah. QTUM. 
and also the things that Baidu has been working on, the AI, and it's also yeah. mounting a pretty big challenge to Google. So I want to get to myth four, which I think is pretty interesting, is China is better at getting things done. What's the myth about there? This is something that's bandied about a lot in Silicon Valley, I think, as well as in inside the American government. I think one of the best examples of, of this phenomenon is you look at China's railway system and, and the high-speed rails, and then, you know, California's attempt to implement high-speed rail at the, uh, you know, at the same time and always using China as the example. Like, look at China. They, they just get things done. Why, why can't we do this? You know, our democracy is broken and, and so on and so on. And so I think it's true to a certain degree that China is better at setting goals, setting long-term goals and, and working to achieve them. But the problem is, and this is this is something that's very, very tied to their education system as well. So in general, I, I would I would characterize Chinese culture in one aspect at least, is that they're very pragmatic. And, and, and what I mean by that is that they set a goal. They say, you know, we want to, for example, again, the high, the, the high-speed railway system. We want to have a nationwide high-speed railway system. And that's their goal. And we want to, we want to achieve it in five years. Okay. Well, that, that's a great goal. And then in terms of them being pragmatic, they don't necessarily care so much about how it gets done as long as it gets done in time. GDP numbers for, for government bureaucrats are, are, the, are the same, where a lot of their, their performance, their promotions, their bonuses, other, other certain benefits they might get from being a bureaucrat is d- almost directly tied to the number of development projects that they approved, the increase in, in overall GDP that their city, county, or province saw in a certain amount of time. And so in those cases, you know, num- number one, obviously, you, you, you can massage those numbers. Uh, number, number two, you, just, you, can, you can invest in projects that have no long-term value but boost, but boost your numbers, but you're boosting the GDP. And so I think that, you know, again, coming back to the railway example, you know, there were some massive problems with the railway system. You don't hear about it very much, but there are some really, really, really bad problems in how some of the railway lines were actually constructed. And in fact, you know, the design top speed of the railway system is actually 350 kilometers per hour. But for the most part, they end up running about 300 kilometers per hour because of some of the ways that some of the the shoddy workmanship, the, the poor quality of the construction of, of some of these railways. And so, yeah, you know, yes, you're right. China does have this amazing railway system and it is great, but there were some huge, huge problems while, while they were building it. And so I think that, you know, I think it's, a, it's a bit of the, uh, the grass is greener complex where people look at China and they say, wow, they're, they're, they're doing amazing, but they don't really know enough. They don't really know enough of the details. And so they just kind of put, put China in some ways on, on a pedestal. And of course, if projects like that gets into a national disaster, you can bet the Chinese government is going to hang those people exactly. who were involved in the projects. I think uh, many years ago, I think there was this particular where Chinese babies were dying from milk because they found salivana in those milk, right? They actually executed everybody on the board of directors on that company. That was no good. And then you look at the railway system. There was a big scandal and big public to-do about the, the Minister of Railways and a few other people who were in charge of building the railway project. And turns out they were siphoning tons of money out of out of the funds to uh, to build the railways. And then, of course, you know, I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with construction, but in construction, there's always there's the contractor and there's the subcontractor, the sub-subcontractor, and, and, you know, all it's turtles all the way down. So the, the person actually doing the job, his margins are really, really low. 
and so he's not necessarily incentivized to to use the best materials. So coming to myth five, which I think is indirectly linked to your earlier myth, is that China has better STEM education. I mean, it's science, science, technology, and engineering and math education. Yes. How are the STEM graduates educated in China? I mean, one thing I do know because I come from Singapore, it's pretty well known that the Singapore education system has been really good at producing, you know, uh, good A students. But actually, to me, it's mainly road learning. Just by the easiest way to beat this count is to say, how many Nobel Prize winners are there in Singapore? Zero. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so but China is actually producing its own Nobel Prize winner, Hugo Prize winners now. So I, I probably will have to say that they are actually getting better at it. So, what is your basis on that myth then? Well, I mean, my stepdaughter, she's 11 years old, and she goes to a public school here here in China. And so I, I get the opportunity to see the education system firsthand. It really makes no sense. I can give you one example where, so last year, when she's about 10 years old, they're teaching her trigonometry. I didn't learn trigonometry, number one, until I was, I think, in middle school, maybe like late middle school. So this is, you know, 13, 14 years old. So at 10 years old, she's already learning trigonometry, but she's not really learning trigonometry. What they're doing, instead of teaching them the formulas and so like how do you calculate the area you know a you know height height times width and 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 so on and so on they're doing it in these these kind of in these ways that honestly I don't understand and it's ba- it ends up being shortcuts to these calculations cuz i remember there was one time where i was helping her with her homework and it was how to calculate the area of some shape and so the first thing that I do is I look it up. I go I go to Google and what's what's the what's the formula to calculate the area of of whatever. And I start doing it and I show it to her. He's like, no, Dad, you, that's not how you do it. It's like, what do you mean it's not how you do it? I mean, this is the right answer. And she says, no, but the teacher's not going to accept that. And I was like, oh, come on, it'll be fine. You got the right answer. It'll be fine. And she goes and she comes back from school the next day and she's like, no, the teacher said it's not right. Do you have to do it this other this other way? On the one hand, they're they're teaching them these things early. I think beyond, I mean, perhaps a bit too early. But on the other hand, they're also teaching them these these shortcuts. And so rather than learning the rules, rather than learning what the rules mean, instead, they're just learning how to do it as quickly as possible. And then, of course, you know, you look at how much homework she has. And as she's gotten older, the amount of homework has has increased. And it's almost all just doing memorization, like doing the same thing over and over again, writing the same word over and over again, doing the same calculations, the same arithmetic, the same multiplication over and over over again. And so I think that so there's there's that with the education system and I think that it's similar to, you know, what I was saying about Chinese people being being pragmatic. The goal of education in China is not to learn. The goal of education in China is to get the highest score. The highest score in primary school ensures that you have that you have the opportunity to go to the best middle school. The the, the high score in middle school, you know, gives you an opportunity to go to the best high school. A high, uh, a high score in, in high school gives you the opportunity to get you into a good university, and a good score in university gets you the opportunity to uh, get a good job. That's the ultimate goal, really, are those numbers. And so, well, how do you get how do you get a high score? Well, it's not learning; it's memorizing and making sure that when it comes time to the test, that you can get as many answers as possible in the shortest amount of time. And so, that's that that's really kind of what what it amounts to. And then, you know, you look. I think that. When when Barack Obama was still president, he pointed to the uh, the PISA scores, these uh, international an international assessment of uh, reading and 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 mathematics ability. In China, the only schools that were actually tested were some of the top schools in Shanghai. And so, number one, you know, Shanghai as a city as a culture is not representative 
of the entire country. The education system, the amount of funding that they get is much better than you're going you're gonna to see in, you know, Anhui, for example, in some tier three or tier four city. In some areas, in some area, rural areas of China, you know, kids have to walk two or three kilometers just to get to school. So this idea that somehow China, China's education system works better is, ju- is, is patently false. By basing your, you know, as Barack Obama did, basing your comparison of, you know, the U.S. education system and the Chinese education system on this one test, the PISA test, it, is it just there, you can't you cannot compare those two because the scores from China were were a very small small sample taken from the top students in the country. I guess for what you are actually reflecting is not just only China. I think it's the same with India. It's the same with Singapore and any parts of other parts of Asia where the education system is very emphasized in rote learning and very little independent or critical thinking. But I guess what I would say to that is that essentially it's also dependent on the stages of development. I guess China is essentially, there's a big middle class rising out. At some point, these things will start to self-correct itself. It happened to Singapore at at our very early stage. And now we are actually evolving our education towards more critical thinking. I think those things do take time. Probably maybe it's the pace of China that takes that time. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and the richer areas, the better funded schools in Beijing, the better funded schools in China, I think you are seeing a slow evolution. But the problem is, you know, some of the some of the brightest kids, some of the, the most well-connected and well-off people, they end up sending their kids to international schools, international private schools. And so I think that's still a bit of a challenge where you're getting the upper middle class and the upper classes. I mean, they're not even sending their kids to the public schools. They're sending their kids to these very expensive international schools. This was something that you probably have to watch as the education system even. I mean, yeah. as a product of that, that education system, I probably understand where you're coming from. But of <laughs> course, there's a lot more myths we can talk about, except that time is always limited. But before, yeah. before we get on this, now, instead of asking you one penultimate question, I have two. So the first one I'm going to get to ask you is, do you have any recommendations for my audience? Could be a podcast, could be a book or could be a movie. Yeah, so so I would say that I, I was thinking about this before, and I have I have uh, three things the, that I that I would recommend, and they're all books. Two of which I've I've listened to, and, and one of which I've read. The first one is Homo Deus by Noah Yuval Harari. He is the the author of Homo of, of Sapiens, which you have if you haven't read, I highly recommend. But Homo Deus is kind of like the sequel to 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 that book, where he talks about how. Like he, 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 I think he very succinctly and very accurately explains through a historical lens some of the changes that we're seeing in in global culture and in and in particular the philosophical collapse of liberalism and the rise of what he calls techno religions um, and so it's really really interesting a lot of a lot of insight and and so actually I think. Looking at it through the lens of China, you can actually see already here in China some of some of what he's saying is already happening, um, and so I highly recommend that. Also, um, I just finished listening to a book by uh, Cal Newport. I'm sure some of your audience probably know about it already, but it's called uh, Deep Work. It was really a fascinating. Uh, I listened to that one as a fascinating listen about how to carve out more time to really focus on on what on what matters and to make sure that uh, you're cultivating your ability to concentrate. Uh, I think that in 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 you know our current uh, environment with with WeChat's with Facebook uh, with Twitter all these all these different uh, inputs and uh, and and stim, stim stimulation it can be very difficult to kind of get lost in it all and so I think that that deep work is a is a great book uh, for some practical applications about how to 
regain control and really focus on what matters in your in your career. And the last book that I want to recommend is something that, something that I just started, Kissinger's book on China, and it's called on China. And it's and it's basically uh, a look at uh, China through the lens of, of their foreign policy. Uh, I just started it and it's very, very clear from the from the very beginning that Kissinger um, has a very deep understanding of, of uh, Chinese culture and the Chinese people. And so if you want to learn more about some of the more recent history of China and kind of why or how it got to where it is now, I would I would highly recommend that as well. Mm, and I also would also put a plug to the the recent book that Kissinger has just written called World Order, which gives you also thinking about what China and US as its place in this new world order. So my final question, as always, how do my audience find you? Well, yeah, so um, China Tech Talk, obviously, you can find that um, on iTunes, just search for uh, China Tech Talk or any other podcast application. Also, technode.com, you know, that's that's where where that's my day job. That's where most of my uh, energy goes into. You probably won't actually see much of me there, but uh, everything that that is on that website uh, has my has my fingerprints on it. You can find me at bleongcw at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia A-N-A-L-Y-S-E. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and of course, Google Play in the US market. Of course, recommend us on Overcast. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or even drop me your valuable feedback. And we are actually going to be beginning a new memberships for people to sponsor and to be patrons of this show. So once again, John, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.